This is the Mobile Tech Podcast, brought to you by worldpodcasts.com. Now here's your host, Tank Girl, Miriam Joie. Brought to you by Mint Mobile. Stay tuned for a special offer at the end of the show. Hi, and welcome to the Mobile Tech Podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Joar, and today is Thursday, January 12th, 2023, and we're freshly back and recovered from CS. And I have Joe Maring here of Digital Trends joining us. Hi, Joe. How are you? I'm good. It's, it's nice to do the podcast finally. We've run into each other here and there at, at press events and stuff, so it's nice we were finally able to get a time to make this work. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm super stoked to have you on too. There's a lot of uh, little stuff going on this week. It's nothing major, but uh, it's definitely building up for the end of the month, isn't it? Like, <laughs> Yeah, we're slowly getting to the big stuff. Yeah, our inboxes have been lighting up. We can't tell you anything yet, but stay tuned. It's going to be exciting. <laughs> so um, I want to start with your thoughts on CES real quick. So I've done two podcasts at CES already. One was like right at the evening of the press, at the end of the press days. And then I actually was only there for day one. I left on day two. I was just like, I'm done. Uh, but <laughs> basically, I you know, we, we didn't cover too much on the second show because it was just the end of day one. I kind of want to know if you have anything that you were like, oh, yeah, this is totally my jam. So go nuts. Tell us. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> This might be kind of a boring pick compared to like the, the E-Ink car and, and Sony's car and all, all the weird stuff that, that CES brings. But the, the Lenovo Smart Paper surprisingly really grabbed my attention. That's the, the 10-inch E-Ink tablet Lenovo announced. Um, comes with a, a stylus. You can use it for note-taking, drawing. It's very similar to a Remarkable 2 or an Amazon Kindle Scribe. Um, a year ago, like if you asked me what would be like my pick from CES, it would not be an e-ink tablet. But uh, ever since I reviewed the Kindle Scribe, um, it, it's been a gadget like I, I cannot stop using. I use it every single day for my to-do list throughout the day for work. I take my meeting notes with it and I just find it, it so much more productive for me versus like a to-do list app on my Mac or trying to take notes on an iPad with an Apple Pencil. It, it's that combination of there's no distractions. It looks like paper and it's a very focused device for note taking, to do lists, whatever it may be. Um, so it, it's exciting to see that Lenovo smart paper. It has pressure sensitivity, which the scribe doesn't. It looks like it right. has a lot more writing templates, a lot more markup tools. Um, and I think it's about $400. It's not too much more expensive than what Amazon's asking for the scribe. Um, which, like, it, it's an e ink tablet. It's, it's not the most exciting thing in the world, but. It, that's become a, a niche I've unexpectedly gotten really into last year. And I'm really, really curious to see how that pans out and also just see like Amazon's doing this, Lenovo's doing this now. And I'm really curious to see if that's kind of like a spark for a lot of other companies to to dive in that e-ink tablet market that's popping off out of nowhere. Yeah, for sure. I think that's totally legit. I mean, I think it's a cool product. It's not for me, but I, you know, I read your review of the Amazon one, and you, you know, you really made a good argument for this being a very helpful product for a lot of folks. So I think some people are going to dig it. I really felt to me like overall Lenovo stole the show for me. Really, there's other things. There's many other things. You know, I cover cars as well, but 
I really was surprised. I mean, they always do something, but I feel like mostly in the past, it's kind of more been Asus for me that's been like the, you know, bringing the crazy to CES. Yeah. But, you know, between the Yoga Book 9i, which was my favorite uh, thing from Lenovo, besides the Think Phone, which we've covered extensively and I really, really dig, um, mostly because it's, you know, a high-end foreign Moto Edge reskinned and brought to, you know, the US without Verizon's meddling, which makes me super happy. Yeah. <laughs> but I feel like Lenovo nailed it on so many fronts. There is that, uh, the Twist tablet that has, uh, you know, e-ink color on one side and the OLED yep. on the other. Um, again, not my thing, but I totally get it for those people who want that. That crazy Android tablet that's 14 inches that has a Dimensity 9000 is just like packed with oh, features. <laughs> and I would never use that. Like we already talked about that on the last couple of shows that it's total overkill. But I still feel like Lenovo just delivered and delivered and delivered. And, you know, Asus had that 3D uh, creator laptop with the 3D OLED display mm -hmm. that was really hard for everybody to do videos on. I didn't get to see it in person, but look, I like their stuff in general. So, you know... I'm curious if there's anything else that stood out from you other than this tablet. Yeah, I, I won't harp on the, the ThinkPhone too much if you covered that pretty extensively already, but... Do you like it? I've, I've, I've loved Motorola phones for so many years. Like, the, the days of the Moto X, the, like the first couple generations were, were so great, and it's just, like, a lot of Motorola's devices today, you have the Moto G line, you have the Motorola Edge line, and a lot of them just feel like cut and paste slightly different variations of the same thing over and over and over again. So it's exciting to see this where it's, you've got a carbon fiber back. You've got the, the red accented customizable button on the side. You have a legit flagship processor. It's like, this is what I've been wanting from a Motorola phone I know. Wireless for so charging, long. You know, like yeah. no, no cheap materials, no plastic frames. Like, it's the real deal. And even the Edge Plus last year, I thought was closest to what we've gotten to having a proper Moto Edge flagship. And since the original Edge Plus in, when was that? 2020, the original Edge Plus, right? Yeah. And like, it's disappointing with the ThinkPhone. Like they're, they're marketing that as a B2B device. They don't have plans right now to do regular consumer sales for, for people like you and me. But I have to imagine that even if those plans don't change specifically for the ThinkPhone, that it's a sign that Motorola, you know, like they can still be creative. They can still do oh, yeah. interesting things with phones. And I like seeing that, like they, they have to do the Moto Gs. They have to do the the budget and the mid-range devices because those sell well. But it's it's encouraging to see them, you know, make a proper flagship. They can still do that. It looks like they're still really good at that. And whether it's the ThinkPhone coming to consumers at some point or it's some other reincarnation of that that's not designed for the the b2b space um i'm i'm really interested to see what what motorola does later this year in the flagship space like this is what i've been waiting to see for a long time and i i really hope it, it goes somewhere out of the the b2b uh, side of things yeah I, I have no doubts we'll see this phone on sale for private you know people in the on the lenovo or moto websites probably through moto's channels in the same way as they sell those unlocked phones like that you know moto edge 30 fusion magenta pantone edition right like mm -hmm. i'm getting one of those and if you look actually i did this in my hands-on story on hothardware.com of the think phone look at the think phone and look at that phone the moto edge 30 fusion 
that they announced mm-hmm. just before the end of the year, it's exactly the same chassis. So down to the ports, down to the millimeter, it's the same chassis, except it's being mil specced. And they have updated the processor from an 888 Plus to an 8 Plus Gen 1. And of course, it's got water resistance and, you know, wireless charging, which the um, the other one doesn't have. So it's interesting, though, but the camera's identical, speakers are identical, battery is bigger on the ThinkPhone, but the charging speeds are identical. Like, it's basically, they took that as a reference design and improved on it. And again, that phone only came to the US, the Fusion, because of the Pantone partnership, and it's sold unlocked, basically, like Moto does from time to time, right? So to me, yeah, I want to see more of that. I want to see those foreign edge phones come, because as soon as Verizon gets their hands on it, and that's my concern, is like, you know, I want to be optimistic that the Moto Edges that are coming this year, later this year, are going to be awesome. And the Edge Plus last year came very close to me to being perfect. The price was too high. The plastic frame was disappointing. But I feel like everything else is pretty solid. Once we get that, you know, then I'll be happy. But as soon as Verizon's going to meddle with it, we know it's going to be, they're going to cut features and the price is not going to be that great. Yeah. At least on the unlocked version, right? I want the unlocked versions to have millimeter wave as well. If they're already making a skew with millimeter wave, why cut that out? Like I'm not using it much. It's not a required feature, but if you look at Apple and Samsung, every flagship they make has it. You know, OnePlus has cut that out of their flagships now, but that's because, you know, it doesn't make sense in Oppo universe to have millimeter wave because that's there are variations of oppo phones anyway now right so i get that it, it bugs me but i get it but with moto if they're already making a skew like pixels all come with millimeter wave like come on like yeah we're, you know if we're, we're pixel going into seven costs what like 5.99 or whatever 4.99 on sale right now like you have no excuse right yeah like, i mean i don't know like Two years ago, maybe like it, that, that was an easier thing to justify when 5G w- was still becoming a thing two or three years ago. I I got that more. We're, we're in 2023 now. 5G is not this weird niche thing like ever. Every carrier has a fairly built up 5G network like it's not that difficult to get it these days. So if, if you're still cutting out millimeter wave on a, a flagship device like that, just because it's an unlocked variant, I, I really hope that's a trend that that died last year because I, I, I don't think there there's an excuse to, to keep that going at, at this point uh, where 5g is in the, in the U S like, but this is a Verizon decision. This is Verizon forcing this on moto, like hundred percent. They're saying, Oh mm-hmm. yeah, you can have an unlocked version, but it has to be $200 more. And you cut out millimeter wave that way. It doesn't compete with us. Like why, like why can't I, the consumer buy it unlocked for moto and activate it on Verizon anyway? Like, why are you preventing that? Because you want to force <laughs> your, your crappy Verizon messaging on my hand? Like, yeah, that, that makes too much sense what you're saying. We have to have it be complicated and, and, and not, not good for us. What, what, what you're saying is too sensical for how these carrier <laughs> deals work. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I've just been playing with the Moto G Play 2023. They sent me one. And I just watched Marquez's re- review of it, which... It's interesting that Marquez went ahead and reviewed a $169 Moto. You know, yeah. I mean, the Moto Gs have always been pretty solid. The Moto Es have now gone away and been replaced by kind of G Play and G Plus and whatever. And then there's some more mid-range Gs like the Stylus G and the 5G models. 
But this phone is honestly great. I mean, I have no complaints. It's slow, the camera isn't great, but everything else about it is solid. The software is really lovely. But Marquez makes this greedy great point. That's why I'm bringing him up. It's like, why would you bother with this when you can buy a OnePlus 7 Pro, you know, used for $200 in perfect condition, refurb? Now, you're going to say, well, Miriam, OnePlus just announced that the last software update is dropped for that phone and that's it. We're done with software updates on the 7 Pro. I don't care, honestly. I'd keep that phone for two years over this Moto for two years for $169, right? Yeah, I, I, I didn't review the G Play. I had my writer, Christine, review that one and she was not not, not very keen on the whole package. Like we, we discussed it quite a bit and it's a budget phone. It's $170, but you're getting something with you know, Mo Motorola has to make cuts to, to reach that price. So you have 32 gigabytes of, of internal storage. Okay, yeah, three half gigs that's of RAM. By, I know. By Android out of the box. Three gigs of RAM. You get Android 12 out of the box. You get one update to Android 13 and then adios. We, we're not going to get any more OS upgrades from that point forward. Um, and yeah, I'm mean, like, there's the argument for, for older flagships and there's the argument for other phones in that sub $200 price range. I mean, Samsung I mean, at CES the problem, announced right? the... Yeah. The Galaxy A14, similar yeah. specs, but you get four years you get of updates, 5G. you get two guaranteed software updates, <laughs> 5G support, 60, uh, double the storage there. and Yeah, and you've got yeah, the T-Mobile Revel phones that are really great at this price yeah. point as well. You know, the, the, the Nord N300 5G from OnePlus comes mm -hmm. very close to that in price. But my point is, it is, you know, we have to remember that 169 to 200 is a huge stretch for a lot of people, right? Like yeah, you're saying, fair. well, you're saying the A14 and I'm saying the N300, but those are a different category of phone already. There are 5G phones. There is a big, like 20% price difference here still, right? Yeah. And that 20% might not be much for you and me, but for the average person that's on a super tight budget or wants a phone for their kid, that's, that's a big, that's a big difference. So I want to keep that in perspective. And, you know, last year I wasn't impressed with the G Play because it was really sluggish. Like not mm -hmm. only was the specs kind of what you expect for that phone, it hasn't really updated that much since last year. If you look at spec wise, last year's and this year's are almost identical, you know, performance wise, but the last year's was so sluggish. This is still slow, but you can tell they've optimized. You can tell they've improved. And that's kind of why I was like, I'm going to take this for a spin for a day. And, you know, if I feel as frustrated as I did last year with the G Play, then I'll, I won't even mention it on the podcast, but I'm bringing it up because it wasn't a terrible experience. Like for the price, it was actually okay. As I said, the only big issues to me here is that it's not so much that you can buy an A14 for $40 more. It's that for that price, $169, I can buy some phones from China import them on Amazon that destroy this thing, that even yeah. destroy the A14 and the N300, like some of the Xiaomi and Redmi phones. And that's the problem, is that we're always reviewing this in the kind of like North American-centric perspective. But you go to India, even Europe, and mostly all of Southeast Asia, and you're going to get phones at $170 that are just like, what? Like, 1080p displays, and you're going to get OLED in some cases. You're going to get 5G. You're going to get some 48, 50 megapixel cameras that don't stink because Moto and cameras, right? 
Like, yeah, that's <laughs> that's not a good combo. <laughs> and, and and I've reviewed a bunch of these, like the Poco, you know, C30 last year, I think it was. That thing was mm-hmm. like $129. And yeah, it, it was about the same leagues as the G Play, but it was still another $40 cheaper almost, right? Like, so like, you know, I think that's the thing we got to remember. And in that sense, you're right. Like, I would rather buy even a mid-ranger from Moto, like a stylus 5G yeah, I mean, from two years ago for $200, $170 used, you know? Yeah, yeah. I say, the, you, we talked about like flagships going on sale, but that's exactly the point. You can get a mid-range, like you said, like a, not the plus version of the Edge, but like the, the base Motorola Edge that goes on sale all the time. You've got like the styluses that go on sale. But like, like you were saying too about, Phones in other markets, India and China, that, that's been a problem for the U.S. forever. Like I, I work with a, a couple of freelance writers out of India. Mm-hmm. They're constantly telling about like these these Realme phones, these Redmi phones that are just miles and miles better than whatever Moto G Play or, or Galaxy A device we get. Either the, the specs are better, the cameras are more interesting, and they're like $150 to $200. And we, we just don't have that competition in the U.S. And I don't know if that's if that's ever going to change, like it gets better a little bit every year, but there's still a really big distinction between our budget options stateside compared to what a lot of the, the rest of the world gets to gets to play with. Yeah, 100 percent. So let's move on to the news. There's a bunch of stuff this week, not too much, but a little a few things I picked up here and there that I thought piqued my interest. Obviously, Samsung's Galaxy Unpacked event is now officially coming on February 1st. So accept the new cycle for the two weeks after that to be completely saturated with Galaxy S23 <laughs> series news and reviews and probably whatever accessories they're bringing to the table. So you know, gird your loins, as it were. Uh, we're certainly going to have to, as reviewers, it's going to be a nightmare. Yeah, that's, it's going to be a busy month. I'm glad we have a little lull between CES and, and Samsung's big event. But yeah, I, I never actually got a chance to use the the S22 series last year. My last Galaxy S device was the uh, the S21. So I'm looking forward to see the upgrade just because it's been a little over a year for me or a couple years for me but based on what we've seen so far these are looking like very yeah very incremental updates um going from the s22 to the s23 like that's the case a lot of years that's that's not a new thing the the new camera design where for the s23 and s23 plus it's no supposedly it's just going to be three individual sensors and not in that that sleek housing, which I really, really like right, on the S21 right. and the S22. Yeah. Like, there's something different there, but I don't know. I'm sure they'll be great. Samsung phones are, are usually solid, uh, but it is, uh, from what we've seen so far, if, you, if you're if you still rocking an S22 here in 2023, maybe there's something really cool. We don't know yet, but for, from the leaks and the rumors, it seems like we're in a year for very small changes in a lot of tiny refinements, which is fine. You You need those years sometimes. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I said, you know, I said winners simply because I have the S22 Ultra. I've reviewed the S22 Plus. And honestly, these phones are just, they're almost, you know, flawless. Like, I mean, I'm not a big Samsung software person. That's about the only place I could duck them. But that's just me. Some people love it. Ah, They're so solid. I use the S22 Ultra for a lot of my car photography because of the flexibility of the lens system. Mm -hmm. And, you know, 
it's just such a great phone all around. I'm not a stylus person, but of course you get the S Pen on top of it now. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I expect the S23 Ultra, which is the one I'm going to be focusing my energy on, my interest on as an imaging, you know, fan to be the the one that, uh, you know, we need to scrutinize more because I'm a little concerned that the 200 megapixel main camera sensor being the first gen implementation for Samsung is, you know, hopefully going to deliver at least as good an experience as the current 108. But Based on the S20 Ultra originally, there were some growing pains. So I'm hoping we don't see those growing pains. I'm really hoping that they do a seamless transition from the 108 to 200 because the 108 right now on the S22 Ultra is super solidly tuned. It works really well. Oh, yeah. Autofocus is great. You get the creamy, delicious, shallow depth of field because, well, you know, big sensor, and I kind of love that myself. I, you know, a lot of people, I, I don't like the fringing on the camera. No, that's totally the point. That's <laughs> totally the point. Like exactly. I know it's a, it's an aberration. I know it's a it's a technically a defect, but it is a defect that you're used to if you're a photographer. Certain lenses do that, and it adds you know, that magical feels like a real camera vibe to the experience. So I'm really excited about them simply because of, uh, you know, the fact that. It can only get better from here. But as you said, it's going to be such a minor delta overall for most people. You know, if you have an old S20 and it's time to upgrade, I think this is going to be the phone for you, right? And assuming they make a small version, because those S20, S21s, and you maybe the 22, I, I didn't play with a regular size 22. They're pretty small phones to today's standards, right? Yeah. I mean, like as someone... I mean, I mean, I, I use an iPhone 14 Pro Max as my daily driver right now, but I, I vastly prefer smaller, more compact devices. And like, I remember from the S21, one of the reasons I like that so much was it it didn't feel like a brick in my hand. I, I could comfortably put it in a pocket, carry it around. It was comfortable to hold. So from my perspective, like that makes me a bit more interested in just the base S23. And it's always fascinating for me to see like, with Google with the Pixel 7 and the 7 Pro, Samsung this year with the S23 and the S23 Ultra, it's always exciting and, and neat to see what a, a company can put in its its lower end flagship, how much of that same flagship experience you get in something that's a bit smaller, something that's a bit cheaper. And I think given like how well received the Pixel 7 was from a lot of people this year, it'll, it'll be like the S23 has its work cut out for it. Like Google's got that that camera system down to a T. It doesn't look like Samsung's made a lot of hardware changes, but presumably there's going to be some software tweaks with the Snapdragon 8 Gen 2 and just other yearly refinements. So yeah, like the, the ultras are fun. They're they're big and exciting, but I'm from my side of things, I'm really curious to see like that Pixel 7 for $599 is almost too good of a deal. It, I know, it's like still. It, you want to buy an Android phone. I've had my my fair share of of bugs and stuff with the phones because I'm just cursed with with pixels for some reason. But that's still <laughs> you the phone. Are, like, you really are. <laughs> someone's You're not like, as I want an Android Artem, phone. Though <laughs> I'm <remember>? getting there <laughs> this year. <laughs> but yeah, it's like six hundred dollars Pixel Seven. So S twenty three for suppose like most likely around the same price. I'm really curious to see what what Samsung does there. This brings up two things. I feel like we have the you know pricing issue. But we also have the fact that, you know, you're talking to my audience on the Pixel. I still think that the average American walking into a 
carrier shop is going to walk out with the S23 instead of the Pixel 7, no matter what. Because it's subsidized. Mm -hmm. They're not going to even notice the price difference, one. And B, the marketing's still not there on the Pixels, like it wasn't there on the OnePlus. And OnePlus is kind of falling off the cliff, in my opinion, in terms yeah. of carrier presence, at least in the US. So, you know, I'm not sure. Like, I agree that my audience would buy the Pixel 7 over the S23, probably. But the average person is not going to make any difference there. They don't even know what the Pixel 7 is and too bad for them, right? But <laughs> at the same time, yeah, that you know, that's what Samsung's counting on. So I'm actually not sure we're going to see um, a lower price necessarily. Also, if they lower the price too much, then the fan editions no longer make sense. Now, they've been abandoned supposedly, but you remember the on and off, on and off that happened last year? we're still seeing some of that like we're seeing conflicting reports every week so like who knows right yeah and, and not to decide to track us too much off the s23 but there were those reports this week that you know next year supposedly samsung's gonna axe the s24 plus and focus on just the s24 s24 ultra and then have that bring back the fan edition for that lower end flagship space which there's there's interesting possibilities there like do, do you if you do that do you hike up the price of the base s24 and try to cram in more camera upgrades and bigger batteries and and rethink that a bit and then you make the the fan edition more of a value focus the way the the s22 kind of was last year but then you have the a series kind of butting against that too right like that's yeah, the problem and, and, and like that that samsung strategy like the like the galaxy a devices are the last few years like some of the best-selling smartphones just period like they they sell well they're cheap people know the samsung brand and it's confusing to keep track of galaxy a galaxy s galaxy z and the, the countless models in there but samsung has that down to a t like it's a lot to keep up with but they've yeah. got the the brand recognition they're in all the carrier stores and it's it clearly works for them as as confusing as it may be for us to keep on top of that stuff sometimes for sure. So anyway, expect some big Samsung news on February 1st in San Francisco is where Impact is. I'll be there, of course, since I have a place in SF and I'm there half the time. <laughs> so expect a podcast with uh, lots of um, the details on that. Um, switching gears to another news item, Qualcomm at CES showed Snapdragon satellite. Now, I was not invited, but that was actually an accident. It turns out that uh, there was some uh, snafu with the media list at uh, Qualcomm, which is why- I love you, it when that happens. Yeah, which is why, <laughs> where, if you're wondering why I didn't appear in any of these many social media and video you know, creations my friends did, that's why. But- um, you know, I've read up on it. I think it's really interesting. I've linked to a Forbes article by Anshel Sag from More Insights. I've had Anshel on the podcast numerous times now, and he gets really in-depth on what it means. Like, I know you guys are very technical here, my audience. So, you know, this is more about like what constellation it uses, how it connects, all that mm -hmm. stuff. Not just, hey, another satellite option on your phone, because that's, you know, really boring. But um, I'm excited about this. I think, look, I think we're we're seeing some, you know, acceleration here. Uh, you know, first there was a T-Mobile and Starlink partnership announcement, uh, which uses regular 5G phones to connect to the Starlink constellation, which the new satellites include a 5G compatible um, system. And 
you know, then there was the iPhone announcement, which you know mm-hmm. had been rumored for years, and you know they're working with. Oh, can't remember the name of the, the constellation. Is that it? Global Star. Thank you. Yeah. And you know, then there is, uh, you know, this Qualcomm announcement, which I think is really interesting because that works for Iridium, which is another constellation again. And so the whole point of these is to provide simple two-way text you know, messaging kind of support. In the case of T-Mobile and, um, you know, Starlink, it gives you a little more because uh, it's a little faster. So you might be able to upload some simple photos. Um, In the case of, you know, iPhone, Apple, it's really just basic emergency. You know, there's very Mm -hmm. low bandwidth, whereas I think Iridium is a little higher bandwidth and Starlink is even higher. And so I think it's interesting. And, you know, there is also MediaTek in this this game, right? They uh, showed something at CES along with Bullet, the company of the UK who makes the cat phones with satellite support. So, you know, I think this is exciting. This tells me that five years from now, Almost every phone we buy will have some sort of basic satellite connectivity for emergencies and or for coverage outside of, you know, terrestrial areas, which, yeah, bring it on. Like, I can't argue with this. It's good no matter what system is being used here, right? Yeah, like, I'll admit, I don't get too much in the nitty gritty of the different satellite networks and the the whole technical side of things. I will say from the the Snapdragon satellite thing, what what stands out to me there is... Um, like you mentioned, the satellite connectivity in the iPhone 14, it is very much just if you're in an emergency situation, you're stuck, you need help. That's that's basically the the one use case for that thing. With the Snapdragon satellite, though, you know, initially it's going to be for those emergency situations like the iPhone, but they're also looking to do it for just regular texting through SMS texting, possibly some messaging apps. It looks like they're they're considering supporting as well. I think that's the the more exciting thing for me. Like I like every one of these, you need to have that emergency element because that's where it really that's comes in point, handy. Right? And, yeah. Yeah. But it, I mean, also, if you're just hiking somewhere or you're in, in a, a remote area where you don't have service, but you're not in a life or death situation and you still want to communicate your location or, or update friends or family about where you're at or whatever, it's it's nice like with Snapdragon satellite and some of these other options Given you that that ability to like communicate over satellite and and not have to make it be emergency SOS uh, situation, it's obviously requires you know a, a, it's a bit more difficult if if you're sending pictures or whatever or, or using it with third party messaging apps. But I, I think it's it's cool we're seeing that that tacked on with Snapdragon satellite. Um, and it, it seems like a nice upgrade from the iPhone. Like hopefully at some point Apple can expand that functionality there too. Yeah, I'm actually more excited about the T-Mobile Starlink partnership because I feel like any 5G phone will work. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't require any special hardware and it's fast enough to upload a photo from time to time. So I think that's okay. Um, What I'm more excited about here and the reason I think this is important is that it's yet another option, yet another radio that we have access on our devices. The question is, the thing, the big elephant in the room here is, as you know, Apple is going to start charging for that feature at some point, and we don't know pricing yet. And there's no way, based on Iridium's current pricing, that this is going to be cheap unless they can work out a deal with your carrier or something. Because here's the thing. 
This is gonna be completely irrelevant and useless if you have to pay a separate subscription to Iridium or Global Star. Now, Apple's smart. They're gonna make it an Apple thing, right? But, yeah. you know, with T-Mobile, obviously, you know, it's gonna be through T-Mobile. But with this, it's, right now, this is Qualcomm saying here, we can technically do this. But until we have an announcement from like, you know, I don't know, Deutsche Telekom or, you know, O2 in Europe or whatever, like, you know, Vodafone or somebody that says, we're partnering with Iridium to give you a package, $5 a month gets you this emergency thing. Then we're right. talking. But until then, like right now, Iridium is like $100 a month. And that doesn't give you more than two-way messaging, really. You know, like, so how are they going to be able to do that? And you don't want to have a separate subscription with a separate, you know, operator for that. So somebody's got to figure out the marketing here. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And like, I mean, Qualcomm's building this into the, the Snapdragon 8 Gen 2. So it, right. it's not turned on by default, but presumably any phone come the second half of, of this year, that option is going to be there if, if the manufacturer wants to pursue it. Theoretically, like S24 next year, I have to imagine Samsung has the know-how and the chops to implement that in a way that makes sense and, and is relatively affordable and they can market that as some some Samsung subscription or, or whatever. But then you get into a company like maybe OnePlus or I don't know, Realme or any other company that's launching a phone with an 8 Gen 2 that has to think about how do we market this? How do we handle the subscription? And that there's a lot of concern there. Like I have faith in Apple and Samsung, these massive corporations to figure out how to market that to people. You get to some of the smaller Android brands and it's like, oh, I, I don't know how this is going to pan out if you're trying to distribute this. I think it's going to be more like, you know, Vove LTE or, you know, Wi-Fi calling support. Your phone has it. It's a standard. It works. It's provided through Qualcomm's software stack and hardware support because you put the right components on your main board on your phone, mm -hmm. right? But then it's the big, like, I think the carriers really need to work on this. This is not a manufacturer thing. This should be Apple accepted because Apple has its own service ecosystem. This should be handled by AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile, and everyone else, right? So will it? That's the big question, you know? Uh, we'll find yeah. out. What I'm more excited about from CES is these other CES news that we've missed because, well, we, we talked about so much stuff and there were two more days of CES after the last podcast, is a Qi 2 wireless charging. Like, this is yeah, that <laughs> freaking awesome. Like, that. it's funny because Apple is part of the the consortium that creates Qi and manages Qi and supports Qi. And so they said, hey, guys, you know, we're not only going to do Qi 2 if you put magnets in there. And so guess what? Android's getting the freaking magnets. Basically, <laughs> Apple's giving it away. And sometimes I love Apple for doing the right thing, because if there's one thing that's made wireless charging 100 times better, it's magnets. And yeah, I, 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 yeah. I've exclusively use magsafe chargers and i i didn't get the iphone 12 series when when it was first introduced but the whole time i had the iphone 13 pro and the whole time i've had my my 14 pro max like i i just use magsafe chargers i've got one on the the table by the bed i slap it on there at night and i've i no longer have that situation where it's midnight i'm going to bed i'm half asleep throw the phone on the the chi charging pad and you don't line up the coils just right and you wake up to a phone that's that didn't Dead. charge at all or, yeah. or it died mm -hmm. overnight mm -hmm. um it takes away that problem like with the magsafe magsafe puck it wirelessly charges you can still use it 
the way you just can't do if you're using a, a chi charger with no magnets involved. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm ecstatic about this. Like the the convenience of magnets is is exciting, and I'm also hopeful that this spurs more interest in MagSafe or or chi to magnetic accessories like that. That buildup's been a little slow over the last couple of years with MagSafe, but if accessory brands, you know, they're gonna know that any phone with Qi 2 is gonna have these magnets that can use accessories. Maybe that spurs a lot of cool stuff with more car mounts or more oh my camera God. Look, accessories. I, I'll give you a cases. perfect example, right? I review a ton of cars, mostly EVs, and I have a Tesla Model 3 myself. It has two mm -hmm. Qi pads, one for the driving passenger, right on the center console. They're angled about like this, right? And they have a nice felt, yeah. you know, kind of like uh, Alcantara finish on them. And, you know, you just prop your phone on there and it charges, but doesn't always. See, because, you know, it's designed to accommodate anything up to like an S22 Ultra in size. And, mm -hmm. you know, that gives it not much room to move. But if you put a regular iPhone on there, like an iPhone 14, there's like a half inch of, of room for it to move. And you're in a car, so it's moving around. But here's another use case. You know, my spouse has both a iPhone SE and a Galaxy Z Flip 3. The Z Flip mm -hmm. 3 does not charge on the Tesla simply because the coils are not lined up, right? Because it's a square and this is a rectangular right. surface with a coil in the middle. So, you know, if this was magnetic, we would just literally plunk our phones on there. They would not only charge right away, the Z Flip would work and it wouldn't fall when I'm taking a curve and, you know, I'm a Model 3 performance, so of course I'm going to drive like a moron. So, you know, <laughs> it's like, of course I'm going to have the phone wiggle on the charging stand. So, you know, it's really interesting to me that this is coming to Android. And I'm a little bummed, though, that the Qi 2 standard doesn't go higher than 15 watt right now because that's mm -hmm. pretty much what we have is Qi 1. But here's the thing. Now you're guaranteed that the coils are lined up, so you're actually getting that 15 watt and you might not have your phone heat up as much. The problem I have a lot with my Pixel 7 Pro and 8 Pro, uh, I still use both, there's that they, uh, on, on my Tesla charger, they, they overheat because they're not perfectly centered. They're always kind of within mm -hmm. the coil, so they charge, but then they overheat and they stop charging. So yeah. like I pick up the phone and it's burning hot and it, it says, you know, not when I plump it down on the charger, it doesn't charge. And it's not that it doesn't see the coil. It's just like, I'm too hot. I'm not going to kill the battery by, exactly. by heating up some more. Forget it. It saves itself. Right. And I get it, but man, that's such a hassle. And, you know, MagSafe solved all that. And I feel like, you know, I've said this before and I kind of want Qi2 to become that. I want to see the back of my MacBook Air M2 that I'm recording on right now, the back cover, have MagSafe in the top and left corner in the back. You yeah, know what I'm saying? I, like the, the I, same puck that's used for the iPhone. I want to be able to go clunk and, you know, slow charge my MacBook Air M2 in my bag, maybe, right? Mm -hmm. Connected to a battery pack so that, you know, the magnets are going to move unless, unlike the MagSafe. And if you're using USB Type-C, you're at the risk of damaging the port or the connector if it's in your knapsack right so like it would be all contained in my case you know i have like one of those zipper cases i put it in there the MagSafe is not very thick it would stay in place the cable would come out to my battery pack i would slow charge now of course that might require more than 15 watts but i want to see that apple make it happen <laughs> yeah and like from my end too like one of, one of my pain points has also been 
um, true wireless ear true wireless earbud cases that wirelessly charge. Like that's something where you have a Qi charger, it can be impossible sometimes to like place it on the right part of the charger because it's such a small contact point. Apple fixed that with AirPods 3 and I think AirPods Pro 2, where you can just plop those in a MagSafe charger. And it's the same thing. It, it aligns perfectly and it works just like your iPhone does in a MagSafe. If Qi 2 can also bring that to, to Galaxy Buds, to Pixel Buds, that's... Yeah. I, I'm, I'm so excited for that. Or even better, if this idea of, have, of having the Qi thing and the lid for the laptop so you can put your airpods back there yeah there you go you know like you don't even notice them they're just clucked charging back there you got an indicator in your menu bar saying you're they're charged okay good pull them off put them back in your ears you're done right like where did i put them are they still in my bag are they in my pocket (laughs) no they're right in the back of my laptop they're right there like i don't know i feel like that's kind of what apple needs to give us along with touch screens well, I'm just going to jump into this news item right now because it's at go. the end. But since we're talking about <laughs> Apple, there is a rumor. I mean, this has been going on, you know, kind of on the wish list for a lot of people for years. And Apple has said no for years. I'm, I'm mixed on this as a, as a Mac user. But, but there is a, now a strong rumor that we might see some touchscreen MacBooks in the future. And, and I'm saying, and I feel like it's the right thing. Like I, I might not be the user for this in the same way as I don't use the stylus on my S22 Ultra, okay? But I mm-hmm. want that to exist. Like one of the most satisfying things about using non-Mac laptops for me, and it's mostly Chromebooks because I'm a huge Chromebook person, is flicking that screen to scroll. Like, yeah. you know, two finger scroll is nice, but like my spouse, for example, still doesn't like to finger scrolling and still uses a mouse or some kind of pointing device with a scroll wheel on it to scroll on their Mac. And you know, the Mac's got the best two finger scrolling in the business. Like it's just oh, flawless. Yeah. Yet, yet, how much easier would it be for them to scroll up by just touching the screen and get to the exact point on the page? Like we all, like that's the only thing I use on a touch screen on, on a PC or a Chromebook, but I want it. And if they add that and they have all this know-how on how to do iPadOS and iOS to be touch awesome optimized without changing macOS too much, add that functionality, that is something I'm on board, even if for me, it's not a must have. So there you go. That's my thought on it. Yeah. You? I've seen a lot of people comment on this where people are saying, oh, oh, if Apple adds touchscreens to, to the Mac, they're going to have to rethink Mac OS and, and reconfigure re- no. it to be touch friendly. But like, no, you don't have to do that. Like last night I was hunched over my couch like a goblin, just scrolling through Twitter or something. And I just the touch sc- the screen was closer to me instinctively went to to swipe on my MacBook Air to scroll down. It's like, oh, crap, I, I can't do that. I got to go back down to the trackpad and move. And it, it's just those little instances where maybe you're closer to the touch to the display. Maybe it's just easier for you to reach up and scroll or something. You don't have to totally reimagine how Mac OS works just for a touch screen to be useful. A- Apple's not going to put a touch screen on a Mac and say, oh, now you're going to have to navigate the whole interface through touch. Like that. If this happens, that's not going to be the point. You're still going to have your mouse. You're still going to have your trackpad. I think if it happens, it's just that option where if you want to use it, it's going to be there. That's how a lot of Windows laptops with touchscreens work. And yep. I think that's the right way to go. Honestly, it works great in Windows 10 and 11. 11 particularly, it works great in the latest version of Chrome OS. And they're not optimized for touch, but they support touch. Mm-hmm. That's all we need. 
I don't want yeah. macOS to change too much here, guys, but it would be fantastic if I'm uh, coding in Xcode and creating an iOS app that I run the emulator and I can, I can actually use the app on the emulator on my screen, right? Yeah. Or, or if I run, you know, on an M-based Mac, on an Apple Silicon-based Mac, Mm-hmm. If I run one of these apps, you know, one of these iOS or iPadOS apps that I can actually, yeah, just use it without having to use this, this work around mouse and trackpad BS, right? Like, mm-hmm. come on, the, the iPad got a trackpad, the Mac needs a touchscreen. It's just, just has yeah. to happen. Like, I, I agree on. with you there. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like I said, it, it wouldn't be something I, I use constantly, like nine times out of 10, it's still going to probably be more, if I'm typing or something, I'm going to use a trackpad, but if, if the option is there for that touch screen, I know there's going to be times here and there where it's useful. I tried touching my MacBook Air screen last night still, even though I know that that's not a, not a touch screen. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I would love to see that happen. And, you know, I just also want to add that, you know, it's this doesn't preclude, you know, making still some Macs without it. Like, you know, it doesn't have to be every MacBook. I mean, yeah. I could see Apple probably switching over to all of it. But look, no matter what, it's always going to be a million times better than the touch bar ever was because, man, I hated the touch bar. I know I some people it love bit, it, but I won't get into that. <laughs> uh, I know it's okay. Like I, I get, I think eventually, you know, you get used to that. Either that or it's Stockholm syndrome. I'm not sure which, but <laughs> <laughs> I just like the emoji slider. That. That's what I used it like 99% oh, for. Oh yeah, I loved that's, it for that's that. definitely, that was definitely nice. But imagine you could do this on the touch screen now. That's my point. Right. Yeah. Cool. Let's talk about VR and XR a little bit quickly. I'm not a VR and XR person. I, I think AR is much more interesting <laughs> and really is really the way to go. But I cannot ignore another CS announcement, which was the HTC Vive XR Elite, which is HTC's top dog in, you know, non-tethered, you know, VR headset, basically. And it competes directly with the MetaQuest Pro, which you know, has its issues. And um, in some ways, I mean, I'm going to link to a story here on, you know, Engadget about it. Check it out. I'm not going to dwell on this too much, but basically the takeaway is that they've made some good choices and some interesting decisions. It's a little more portable, for example. It's lighter, but it's still very expensive and still does it really, you know, bring anything to the table for anything but hardcore VR like those people who exercise on VR every morning and sweat to death in their headsets. I don't know how they do it. Like I would fog up in a heartbeat. Plus I wear glasses. So then you have to, uh, VR is a bad experience for any of those of us who wear glasses because half the headsets don't support, Yeah, you know, either you have to take off your glasses and then there's not the adjustments you need, or you put your glasses on and then it's a foggy mess. I don't know. I, I'm just not down on this. I, I do have to give HTC some love though, because I use their cheap and, a standalone headset last year at MWC briefly for an in-car VR demo. And it was super comfortable. It actually worked. I could see I did not get fogged up. It was lightweight. So this is not it. But Mm -hmm. I have to say so far, I've had a better experience with the Vive products. Let let me rephrase that. A less crappy experience with the Vive products (laughs) than the Meta slash Oculus products. Okay, let's put it this way. Yeah. So, you know, eh. The extent of my my VR use is I've got a, a first generation Oculus Quest, MetaQuest, whatever you want to call it. And I gamed on it quite a bit when it first came out, like the first six months or so I had it. And it's been relegated to if I don't feel like going to the gym in the morning, I'll play Beat Saber for half an hour. And that maybe happens like once a month or something if I'm being generous. And otherwise, it just, it just sits in the entertainment stand. It doesn't get much use. Um 
I know a lot of people really like it. Like there, a lot of people are really gun ho on VR, and the the HTC Vive XR Elite seems like it's doing a lot of interesting stuff with the um, you know, it, it's being compared a lot to like the MetaQuest Pro, but this is lighter than that, which I know is one of the big complaints for the MetaQuest Pro. Um, it still has the the Snapdragon XR2 chip, which, which is powerful. It has the full color pass through, so you can still see what's in front of you, and it looks somewhat right. lifelike. Um, yeah, like the the hardware looks fascinating, but that's the th- like you mentioned, it's expensive, so it's prohibitive for VR is still kind of a, a niche prohibitive thing. So you have this high end flagship thing that's marketed towards high end gaming or, or productivity. You put a headset on, you do your remote work from it. I don't know. I, I I get like Meta's pitch of you put on the Quest Pro, you can take it with you. You have a computer that you can use three or four computer monitors, whatever it may be. And like the idea is cool, but I, I don't like the idea of strapping one of these massive pro grade headsets on my face. That's going to maybe last for two or three hours on the battery. That's horribly thousands of dollars or, or whatever these things cost. And it's a weird place. Like I, I think the sweet spot is like that that MetaQuest 2 or a PS VR or something where it's a bit more affordable. It's like, there's a clear focus on gaming, but you, you get to like a MetaQuest pro or this new HTC headset. And it's like, there's a lot of tech there. You can use it for productivity. You can use it for gaming, but I, I don't know. Maybe there's a big market for that. I just, it's not been something that's really caught my eye. So it's difficult for me to personally get excited about it, but I, I can see for someone who's really into this niche, from a technical standpoint, it looks like HDC made a lot of right calls here, but yeah, no, absolutely. I, I feel the same. Yeah. The one I played with at MWC with the Vive Flow and it, you know, that's really small, compact and lightweight, foldable, mm-hmm. almost like a pair of glasses. It's still pretty expensive, you know, like for 500 bucks or so. Yeah. But I felt like that's, that's, that's heading in the right direction to me, you know, whereas this thing is like, eh, why, you know, and again, yeah. you know, there are some, <laughs> the reality is this is, you know, I believe in AR more than VR because I believe that VR can be a subset of AR, but because you cover your eyes. Right. Mm-hmm. So we need, we need developers out there to start figuring this out. We've seen how crappy the meta experience is, right? Like from the various reviews, like the the MetaQuest Pro review by The Verge is definitely like one of the most compelling examples of why this sucks, right? Yeah. (laughs) But we need this, like, I I don't want to give up on that technology. I think that we need people to be out there and develop and try it out. We need the technology to improve. Qualcomm's working on that. MediaTek's working on that with Sony. Like, a bunch of companies continue to work on that. So I appreciate the progress. I want to see more, but it's not for me, and I can't get too excited about it. That's all, you know? But let's acknowledge that progress is being made. Potentially, I, I want to see smaller, lighter, cheaper. Uh, this seems to go in the wrong direction, but maybe there is some professional applications for this. If you are, you know, designing aircraft engines and you need to see things in full 3D all the time, this is probably a better product than that 3D laptop from ASUS, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 not we, not to say I'm this too long. Like I agree with you with the AR stuff. I had the Google Glass Explorer edition way back when. So did I. Oh my god, I missed that so much. I, that I that light minimalistic thing that doesn't look like massive ski goggles on your face that display some helpful helpful information i'm all for that type of thing and like ar going in that direction where it's this minimal thing you get some heads up information that's useful i think that's really cool and like for this niche that's what i'm looking more towards not 
not a MetaQuest Pro or or the XR Elite. I'm glad people are, but that, that's just not my cup of tea when it when it comes to this space. Yeah, same here. So, hey, you wrote a story about, well, it's probably an ongoing story you're updating all the time about the, you know, everything we need to know about the Pixel 7a, which has been mm-hmm. leaked multiple times. I bring it up again because there was another leak, a little hands-on experience in a crappy TikTok video uh, this week. And since you wrote it, I kind of want to get your take on the Pixel 7a. Obviously, the 6a, all the A's have been phenomenal phone, every single one of them, yeah. in my opinion. But the 5A and 6A more recently have really, really impressed me. The 5A being particularly stealth, as I like to call it, because mm-hmm. it didn't seem like much of an improvement over the 4A 5G, yet being slightly narrower, better feel in hand, water resistance. Battery lasted forever. Exactly. It was just an improvement overall. But the 6A, mm, oh, the 6A. I mean, I'm not surprised it won MKBHD's camera of the year. Like, oh, yeah. it is such a solid camera system. But the 7A, what do we know? What's what's the lowdown on this so far? So design-wise, it, it, you know, first glance, it looks basically identical to a, a Pixel 7. Um, presumably, right. it's going to be plastic and less premium materials to get that price down but you have roughly the same size screen we're expecting with the same back design where it's a metal or plastic bar with the camera cut out there um one of the big upgrades that's been really heavily rumored for this thing that i really hope uh is true is that the display is going to switch from a 60 hertz refresh rate that we've seen on to a 90 every pixel a to to 90 hertz which you know, that, that's not the end of the world for me. It wasn't a deal breaker for the Pixel 6a. It was still a really, really good phone. But that bump from 60 to 90 makes a world of difference, especially if you have a chipset, which this is rumored to have Tensor G2, which is a very capable chip. You pair that with a 90 hertz display and that works really well on the Pixel 7. That's a really fluid, fast, snappy phone. Presumably you get that same you know, fast experience on the Pixel 7a for a lot less money if you get Tensor G2 with a 90 hertz screen. That's a killer combo right there. Another interesting, well, I'll say on Tensor G2, one of my, I love the Pixel 6a a lot, but the thermal management on the Pixel 6a and the battery life was atrocious for me. I know some people had better time with it. I I mean, that's true of Tensor in general, like my 6 Pro, right? It's Mm -hmm. like, eh, battery life, mm, bad. (laughs) yeah like pixel 6a i could if i was careful i got through a day with it but there were definitely times where it died by early evening um if i'm out shopping with a a shopping list app and uh, looking at the target app to scan for deals and stuff it it would feel like i was playing call of duty mobile for an hour just because i was hopping back and forth between the two apps it was really really bad so um like we've seen the pixel 7 and 7 pro tensor g2 is more performant with battery efficiency. It doesn't heat up quite as much. I'm really hoping that's also the case for the Pixel 7a because that was one of my bigger issues with the 6a. So presumably that gets improved. Um, I am a little, not worried, but I'm I'm curious what happens with the camera uh, situation. The the rumor right now is that it's going to switch from the tried and true 12.2 megapixel camera that every pixel a device has Has used yeah (laughs) yeah um looks like it's going to be a 64 megapixel sony imx 787 sensor which is not the same 50 megapixel sensor on the 
Pixel 7 and 7 Pro, it's still higher resolution than 12 megapixels, but we like look, we've had this issue when when Google jumped from 12 megapixel to 50 megapixel, there were some same with Apple, you know, jumping yeah. to 48 megapixel actually, you know. It takes a year to get there. I feel like they've gotten there for the 7 7 mm -hmm. Pro now with that 50 yeah, like, megapixel Samsung sensor. But yeah. Yeah, and like maybe maybe Google has that experience under their belt from the jumping from the Pixel 5 to the Pixel 6 and Pixel 6 to the Pixel 7. They've got experience switching camera sensors and making that work with their image processing. So I have to assume that makes this transition from a 12 megapixel camera to supposedly a 64 megapixel one, the Pixel 7a. That's got to help them, but it, it still makes me worried because I, I love, 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 love how that 12 megapixel camera looks on the Pixel 6a. And I really hope a new sensor doesn't throw some unexpected wrench into well, the processing okay. or the sharpness or anything like that. I agree with your concerns, like they're valid. I feel like though that you shouldn't be concerned because here you go. Here's my theory on this. The Sony sensors are way better than the Samsung sensors ever, always. And mm -hmm. tuning them is a lot easier. And so, you know, as much as I agree with you, the 6A and previous sensors, the 12 megapixel is, is you know, super good. As we know, I feel that actually when the Pixel 6 and 6 Pro came out, I felt that the photos initially were worse than the 5a right mm -hmm. and because of that tuning they needed to get done and now they've done it yeah. i think it's it's getting there it's closer so i i feel that they could probably apply the same stuff to assist sensor and this sensor is going to come out of the gate being a really good sensor because it's an, a sony sensor whereas the samsung sensors are not generally hardware baseline as good right so that's that but the other thing is I want that big sensor creamy bouquet, right? So I'm looking forward yeah, to that. That's fair and then point. <laughs> the other thing is, here's the thing, you now have 64 megapixels. All right, so the center, you can use the center 16 megapixels to do a lossless 2X zoom, like on the Pixel 7 and 7 yeah. Pro. But more importantly, with the super res zoom, think how far you can go now with that 64 megapixel sensor. So I'm actually hopeful. Like, I agree with you, there are some potential caveats here but i want to say that google's gonna nail this and you know there's also rumor of them adding wireless charging to this phone which for me is a must-have on any phone mm -hmm. and that makes me wonder do i need a pixel 7 or 7 pro anymore and what's the price difference versus the 7 gonna be because the 7 is so affordable and so good and has 90 hertz and wireless charging so what's your take on this like are they shooting themselves in the foot or is this gonna be 399 or 450 and the people are just gonna buy that instead of the pixel 7 at that point yeah i i mean presumably like Let's say Pixel 7a costs 449. That's how much the Pixel 6a costs. That's how much the Pixel 5a costs. Like we're we're past the the 399, 349 days of the Pixel 6a. But yeah, that that's still 150 dollars cheaper than a Pixel 7. Yeah, that's true. Mm -hmm. Presumably you get wireless charging. Presumably you get a 90 hertz display. You're not getting a telephoto camera. It's likely going to be that main camera and an ultra wide camera. But like you just said, if you have a 64 megapixel sensor paired with how good Google is with its digital super res zoom, you, you will have kind of some zooming capabilities on there, even if it's not a true telephoto lens. And maybe that does shoot the Pixel 7 in the foot a little bit, but I don't know if, if Google really cares because like you're still buying a Pixel at the end of the day. You're, you're still buying right. a Google phone. And, and then the Pixel 8 is coming at some point soon after that anyway. Yeah. 
So I don't I like the Pixel 6a last year. Like I I had my I didn't like how hot it got. I didn't like the battery life, and I I wish it had wireless charging. I wish it had a 60 hertz screen. Based on what we've heard from the rumors, like the Pixel 7a could fix all of that. And if it comes in for 449, <laughs> like do do I care about the Pixel 8 when it comes out? In yeah, the fall? but this is my do point. Do I care about like, the Galaxy I'm... S23? I mean, there it's it almost sounds too good to be true when you when you put it together like that. Like, this is unbelievable. And if it is true, and I believe it probably will be, like, we have the best Android phone of 2023 right there. Oh, yeah. Easy. I mean, we we were saying a little bit ago that we don't get a lot of exciting budget phones in the US, but I think (laughs) this is a prime counter argument to that, where we could have a a phone for under $500 that does, that's effectively a flagship phone in so many regards and kind of puts an S23 or a Pixel 7 or an iPhone 14 to shame. And that's that's really exciting. Like of all the phones coming out this year, this is like way at the top of the wish list of if, if these rumors come together the way they're they're believed at this point. And like, I agree with you. I think what we've heard is pretty accurate. These Pixel leaks are usually pretty accurate. This is probably yeah. be my, new, my new go-to recommendation for friends and family. You need, you need a new Android phone. You, you should just buy the 7A and, and not just, bother just with anything that. else. Yeah, I already feel that way about the 6A most of the time. So, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, speaking of affordable phones, um, the last item we have here is that the iPhone SE, the next one, the one that was supposed to recycle the iPhone 11 and XR, 10R mm-hmm. chassis design with the LCD on and, you know, the the, the Face ID stuff is dead is gone they're not going to do it they were but what the reason that brought this in there because this year's san marina article is actually really interesting and in that the reason they're not doing it is they were apparently going to use that phone to launch their own radio their baseband their 5g chipset you know because as you know right now apple uses qualcomm's 5g radio modem chipset mm-hmm. baseband whatever you want to call it so they were going to because it's a big risk to go with your own chipset, they were going to tr- do that on the affordable phone in case things went wrong. They, they wouldn't be their flagships that are affected. And But it looks like the, it looks like the chip's not going to be ready. So as such, they're just going to pass on this iPhone SE and we might get an iPhone SE maybe the year after. But right now it looks like next year's iPhone SE, which, you know, the SC has been a two-year cycle, is not happening, at least for now. And in a way, I'm kind of happy because while the current SC is pretty awesome, the only thing it really needs is a night mode and an ultra-wide and, you know, maybe a better better screen. But at the price point that it has, it has wireless charging, it's metal and glass. You know, it's an iPhone. It's got the la- one of the newer chipsets. It, it, you can't go wrong. Like, it, just, it has 5G now. Like, it's a great solid phone. I know it looks old, but some people still, like my spouse, have has an SE because they don't want to use Face ID. They like the, the mm-hmm. home button, and they're stuck with that, and they were really happy with that. So, you know, I kind of feel like maybe, I don't know. I don't think Apple should make an iPhone XR or iPhone 11 chassis-based SE. I think they should recreate the SE from scratch for next one. Yeah, I like I I don't wholly disagree with you. Like I I, I get there's a market and a want for that that iPhone 8 body where it has the home button. It's the compact size. But like like my parents for for years and years, like I've I've tried to nudge them to get iPhones and stuff. But like the SE is in their price range, like what they would want to spend on a phone. But they 
they need a much bigger phone. Like neither of them want a phone that small. They want something with a bigger screen that's easier to see and right. stuff. And I, I just know they'd be uncomfortable and not happy with something that compact. But it's not the size that I'm talking about. I'm talking about the home button. So here's my thought. Put the fingerprint sensor on the power lock key. Give us a punch hole, standard camera on top, like an Android phone. Maybe make it a little, shape it like the uh, the pill on the 14 Pro, right? Even mm -hmm. if it doesn't have much, then the proximity sensor, light sensor, and the front-facing camera. It doesn't do Face ID, but it's, you know, a bezel-less LCD maybe, you know, but just modernize the design, but give people the option to unlock with their finger and then repurpose the power lock key to be a home button somehow. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. That a weird would be spot. the like, way to go. In a perfect world, I would love to see the, you know, the iPhone 8 body stick around as one SE option. Then you have the, the 10 hour body as another SE option. So if you want to spend under $500, if, if you want that small form factor, you want the home button, there you go. If you want modern design with Face ID, you have that option. I, I know that that's most you likely not going to happen. You can always buy last year's happen, iPhone but... base model for the Face ID model, you know? Yeah, that's fair too. You you could buy a 12 or I, I think you can still buy an 11 these days too if you really wanted to, or maybe not. You can get a 13 or a 12, yeah, for, for less money yeah. than a 14, but... Like, I'd much rather see an OLED with a hole punch or like a slightly pill punch, mm -hmm. you know, a higher quality display on a cheaper SE than an LCD... 10R, 11-based, you know, face ID design with, as I said, the fingerprint sensor on the power lock key and some kind of home button. Even maybe the home button is just like a virtual, you know, you press the bottom bezel or something and it, yeah. it taps, you know, it's got like the haptic, it detected your thumb there on the edge. And it's like, I don't know, even that should be actually ad added as a feature in disability in the iPhone, like yeah. the home button virtual on, on the screen. Like, you know, I believe that exists, but I don't know if it exists on the face ID phones. It existed on the home button phones, right? Yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure that's just an iOS wide accessible. I'm I'm pretty certain you can get that on the the face ID ones. Um Well there you go then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Regardless of, of the design or whatnot, like it's just coming off talking about the, the Pixel 7a, I think it puts Apple in a weird spot where you have I this just... phone that came out last year. It's 429, and this is gonna be your budget phone going into throughout all of 2023, supposedly. And you don't have an ultrawide camera, you don't have night mode, you have a pretty low quality display that's 60 hertz and has big bezels. And you com you compare that to a Pixel 7a that we're expecting, and it's it's a night and day difference of that budget approach. Obviously, there, there's still the difference of someone that wants an iPhone isn't just going to up and switch to a Pixel or a budget Galaxy phone. But I was just going to say, it's got iMessage, Joe. Yeah, I <laughs> the blue bubble is strong. It's It's... A little frustrating Apple can get away with that. Like this is gonna be their budget pick while while Google and Samsung have so much better options for the price. But that that's what they do. They, they can yeah. do it. And that's how it goes. We'll see how it goes. I'm really curious more about how that baseband story, that that inside internally designed 5G radio modem thing uh, pans out. Listen, we gotta wrap up. Uh, do you want to tell folks where they can find you on the internet, your various social media handles, where you write, what else you do? Yeah, um, I spend most of my work days uh, writing and editing stuff for Digital Trends. I'm the, the editor for the mobile section there. So if you go to digitaltrends.com slash mobile, 
all, all the articles you see on there, I've either written or have passed by my edit desk and we do a lot of cool stuff on there. If I'm not doing that, I'm on Twitter still at JoeMarring1. I have a Mastodon account that I've forgotten about, so <laughs> I don't need to plug that, <laughs> but um, I'm, I still hang out on Twitter. I share a lot of my articles there and just random crap that I find and a lot of photos of my my dog and my cats. So yay, pets. good times there. Awesome. Do you have an Instagram at all? I do. I have not uh, up- updated it in like two years, so it exists oh. if you want to look for it, but there's no activity <laughs> there whatsoever. It is dormant. All it right. Is. Well, folks, you know where to find me on the internet. I'm at Tankerl. That's T-N-K-G-R-L, like the comic book character. Drop all the vowels. That's on Twitter and on Instagram. If you want to chat about this podcast with me and Joe, do it on Twitter for better or for worse. We're still there. Let's see how this pans out this year. <laughs> but uh, if you want to see pretty pictures of phones and pretty pictures of cars, food, travel, whatever I come across, all taken with phones primarily, check out my Instagram, same handle, tankerl, T-N-K-G-R-L. There's a couple of YouTube channels that supplement the podcast, youtube.com slash mobiletechpodcast and youtube.com slash mobiletechmore. Those are going to ramp up a little bit this year. I'm hoping to publish three times a week. So maybe you guys can hold me to that, at least on the Mobile Tech Podcast channel. So you know how YouTube works. Like, subscribe, tell your friends, click the little notification bell and comment. Comment about the podcast too, if you want. The podcast itself lives at mobiletechpodcast.com. We're on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Spotify, everywhere good podcasts can be found. So please subscribe, tell your friends. And if your app lets you review or rate the show, consider doing that. That'd be awesome. Finally, for those of you who want a little more, and more importantly, those of you who want to support me financially, there's a Patreon, patreon.com slash tankgirl. That's patreon.com slash T-N-K-G-R-L. There's a bunch of goodies there you can sign up for. Uh, You can just, you know, make a donation every month, but you can also join the Discord server with a little bit more money. You can also get a video version of this podcast that uh, airs a day or so before the audio version that's public and free. So you get to see us on video and sometimes we brandish phones and stuff and do silly things. I also kind of edit it less. So usually there's a bunch of bloopers in there and stuff as well. So check out the Patreon for that. Finally, uh, there's also a bunch of other tiers you can check out there bigger perks like a monthly meetup with me on video. So something to consider. Check out the Patreon. I'd appreciate you supporting me and helping me there. So patreon.com slash TNKGRL. So as you know, I'm constantly reviewing multiple phones. And while that's fun, it also means I'm constantly spending a lot of money for wireless service on multiple SIMs. That's where Mint Mobile comes in, and that's who I'm partnering with for today's podcast. If you also want to save money on your wireless service, switch to Mint Mobile. As tech-savvy early adopters, you've probably heard of Mint Mobile before, but let me quickly tell you how awesome their service is. Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for as low as $15 a month, and you don't have to sacrifice any coverage, speed, or data. They're built on the nation's largest 5G network. They keep costs low because they sell direct to you online. They cut out the retail stores and salespeople. Why should you pay more than you have to for access to the same network? In my experience testing phones, Mint Mobile delivers the same data speeds and call quality as the big three for a fraction of the cost. Switching to Mint is super easy. Thanks to their eSIMs, you can sign up and activate immediately right on your phone from the comfort of your home. No more standing around and waiting in line at a big wireless store. You can keep your current device and phone number and easily switch services. And if your phone isn't eSIM compatible, 
Mint will ship you a new SIM free of charge. All Mint Mobile plans include unlimited nationwide talk and text, lightning fast 5G, and free mobile hotspot. Mint will show you how much data you use each month and recommend plans that save you money. Mint also offers a modern family plan that lets you set up a super affordable family plan with as little as two lines. Use my link mintmobile.com slash mobile tech to get premium wireless starting for $15 a month. That's mintmobile.com slash mobile tech. Stop paying more than you need on your wireless bill and start saving big with Mint Mobile. There's one last way you can help out. There's a PayPal link in the show notes. If you want to buy me a coffee, you can click on that. And I'd appreciate your support and your help. And Joe, I want to thank you for being my guest this week. Thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. I know I know the first timing didn't work out a few weeks ago, but I'm, I'm glad we, we made it happen. I'll definitely have to pop on here again sometime. It's nice getting back to the podcasting thing. Absolutely. I'll I'll definitely have you on in the future again. And folks, we'll have another show next week. So stay tuned for that. Until then, cheers, everybody. This has been the Mobile Tech Podcast with Tank Girl, proudly presented by worldpodcasts.com. You can visit us online at mobiletechpodcast.com.